Night Talk with Oliver Dixon. 13 minutes after 10 o'clock, you're listening to Night Talk. My name is Oliver Dixon. Thank you so much for your time this evening. I really do appreciate it. Jonathan Schwartz, a journalist based in Tel Aviv, joins us here. Uh, 60 journalists having been killed so far in the uh, ongoing um, Israel-Gaza war, specifically, uh, seemingly at least, 51 of them uh, being Palestinian and the other nine of the count that is verifiable um, are a split between uh, Israeli journalists as well as uh, Lebanese journalists. Many journalists continuously trapped inside Gaza, unable to make their way out of Gaza. Uh, but if they do, there will seemingly be an information blackout in Gaza. But the reality is, what is the minimum standards of protection that warring parties are supposed to have with regards to the press corps and journalists who are supposed to be uh, uh, protected. And, of course, we know the United Nations had um, had a base camp for journalists. You would recall the SABC journalist that we had spoken to about two weeks into the conflict who was in, trapped in a bunker within a building in Gaza saying that, look, the United Nations is protecting us as best as they can, but there's absolutely no certainty that uh, the building we're in may not get struck uh, by an airstrike by the Israeli Defense Force. So we really also are as vulnerable uh, as every other uh, citizen in Gaza at the moment. What is the minimum standard uh, of care that warring parties must make sure they adhere to as far as journalists are concerned? Jonathan, you're a journalist. Uh, you're in Tel Aviv, uh, which also experienced some level of uh, strikes at at, 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 the, at least within the beginning of, within the first few weeks of, of the conflict. Um, and I'm talking about the post-October 7th conflict here. Correct. What Correct. is the minimum standard of protection that is expected, at least that you would have, as a journalist, expected on both sides? Um, <clears throat> journalists obviously have protection, they, and as long as they are clearly marked as journalist press, then uh, they are, in theory, supposed to be uh, immune from attack. Obviously, this is more relevant to ground troops who can see, you know, the distance they can see who's, who, who's in the in combat zone of theirs, who the targets are. If And uh, I don't think uh, that uh, certainly the IDF and I think most of the uh, I, don't, I can't speak for Hamas. I don't know what their policies, but certainly both the IDF, the PA forces and all the and most of the Arab armies around us, none of them will deliberately target journalists. This is for sure. On the other are hand, they able to, are they able uh, to guarantee that if the method of attack are airstrikes, remote airstrikes? No, at because least. it's impossible to guarantee airstrikes because the pilot hasn't got a. Whether it's a manned aircraft or an unmanned aircraft, the uh, uh, the pilot or operator of an, of an unmanned aircraft uh, really uh, can't know uh, for the most part. Um, uh, if there are journalists in the in the area that that's about to bomb, there's no way to know that. Uh, there's no way to recognise them from the, those distances as journalists. And uh, so, uh, no one is deliberately targeting journalists. But uh, as a journalist myself, you know, I, and I'm not trying to make light of 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 of, of colleagues, you know, who have been killed in war zones, but. But this is part of being a journalist. To me, journalism is not a profession. It's a calling. So I, I, I just want to go... 
so I just want to go back to my first question, Jonathan. So the the test, I think, that is applied here, and perhaps what I do do want to reemphasize, and hopefully we can get into the detail of it, is not whether any of the two warring parties are deliberately targeting journalists, but rather right. whether the minimum standard of care and protections that are expected are being applied. I think they are, because I say the minimum standard is you don't deliberately target journalists. They obviously, because war is war and combat is combat and accidents happen and mistakes happen, but, uh, and, and it's regrettable, but you know, it's, but it happens. But as long as it's not deliberate, I think, I think the basic standard is you do not deliberately, just like you do not deliberately target medical staff, you do not deliberately target journalists. I think that is yeah. what I would call the minimum standard. So, and I think that for the most part is being adhered to. So, if if you have reasonable suspicion that within a certain area, within a part where you're attacking, may have journalists on the ground, um, and yet continue to attack, um, does that fall below the standard of not deliberately attacking journalists? I'm not an international jurist, so you know, and I've never, I have not gone in depth into international law on this, <coughs> you know, on this, uh, on this point. So I don't feel qualified in that regard to answer. Yeah. And this is about international law, and I'm not a jurist. All I can say is that I have been under fire myself as a journalist, as an editor in chief. I have sent journalists into combat zones who were under fire. Fortunately, none of us were ever hurt or injured. And uh, but uh, uh, but it's just uh, that's why journalism is a calling. And when you when you when, when this is your calling profession, but it's also to me journalism is much a calling as a profession. And I think anyone who just regards journalism as a profession shouldn't be a journalist because to me it is a calling as much as a profession. The last time and we saw, we understand that that's part of the uh, that's you know that's it's just part of being a journalist. You know the risks you're going to take, uh, both you know in my case, both personally as a journalist, and even more difficult as an editor, sending off a journalist to a war zone. I'm talking about the uh, Kosovo in this in this case, and uh, and uh, and uh, Sarajevo. Yeah, uh, you know you were in former Yugoslavia. And it's just something that, you know, that's part of life. It's part of this uh, calling, profession calling. It's just part of it. Yeah. Uh, perhaps a normative question for you to reflect on here um, is when, you know, a journalist goes into a combat zone, this risk exists, right? But what do you think makes this particular combat a lot more deadlier for journalists than any other war in history with the exclusion of the Vietnam War? Okay, I'll, you know, I haven't checked those figures. I'll take them in good faith if you say that. I've seen you've checked the figures and they're correct. Um, possibly because <laughs> it's, it's, it's in a very area. Uh, obviously, the, the smaller they are, going to be a lot of journalists covering, covering any war. When the war's over a larger area, just less concentrated in any, in any given spot. So less likely would have been hit. Here, Gaza is one of the most densely populated areas in the world. Because it's the Middle East, it probably attracts more journalistic coverage than, than wars, say, in DRC. 
I'm sure the world in DRC, you know, have been much more devastating, for example, than Gaza. But because, but the world being the world, and there's a lot of hypocrisy in there. Israel's a Western country. We know, unfortunately, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not saying anything new that in the world we live in, and it's wrong, but this is a fact that probably I can say that for the most part, a Western life is considered more valuable than a non-Western life. It's unfortunate, unfortunate truth of the times we live in. And Israel being Israel and the Middle East being Middle East and it's and the centrality of the Middle East in the in the, in the, in the Judeo-Christian narrative, which is one of the dominant narratives of the world, of course, because of, of, of it just is. So it's going to attract more attention. And so more journalists covering a war in a, in a very small, densely bubbles up area, the chances of, of, of being hit are just just increased. Okay. I don't think it's yeah, I don't yeah. think it's deliberate. It's just, it's just you know, pure statistics. It may sound, I don't want to sound cold-blooded, but yeah, that's that's the nature of the beast. Yeah, I want to uh, bring into the conversation William Bird, director of Media Monitoring Africa. William, good evening. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, perhaps to ask you the the, the foundational question here: um, What when? conflict takes place and journalists enter a combat zone in in, in, in a conflict or a war, um, what is the minimum standard of protection that journalists are due by both warring parties, uh, especially if we're talking about state-acting warring parties here, right? Um, the, the, the answer that at the start of the conversation uh, was given to us by Jonathan is that at, at minimum, uh, warring parties should not deliberately attack journalists, right? I can reasonably see why that's an important test. But is there anything else as an obligation of rules of war that are placed on warring parties in relation to the protection of journalists? Hi, good evening. Well, I mean, I, <clears throat> I think that basic international law would require that you adhere to... The, I mean, it, it, on a level, it's quite ridiculous to talk about rules of war when it's almost by definition something that violates rights just by its very nature. So it, it's kind of, there's a fair level of hypocrisy in that. But you would expect a country that is uh, a signatory to the UN Convention on International Rights um, that they would subscribe to and then follow and adhere the international best practice. And so part of that means that you would treat, <clears throat> excuse me, journalists in the same way as you would treat, say, ambulance people who are uh, there trying to save and, and look after injured uh, people, that they're not deliberate targets. Then again, we know that civilians shouldn't be deliberate targets, and yet we see that they are frequently uh, deliberate or, you know, called collateral damage. Mm. And, and so when journalists are part of that, it, it's, a, it's an even bigger problem. I guess part of what makes this even more egregious is that we're not seeing any kind of coherent response from the states. You know, the states, not just the, the states and state parties involved, but globally, you know, why are we not seeing uh, outrage statements from all of the, the, the UN Security Council members saying journalists are not targets. We demand that journalists' uh, lives are, are respected and that they show a level of of, of, of protection in these kinds of circumstances and that we will investigate and actually carry out investigations and, and make sure that people responsible are held accountable. Because again, when you just allow these things to happen and you offer vaguely mealy-mouthed apology for it, 
it doesn't suggest that there are any standards that you are intending to abide by or adhere to. So in this instance, I think the the the, the shocking silence by so many nations on attacks on journalists is, is just unforgivable. Then again, if we bring that down locally, we see that when journalists are attacked in South Africa, political parties by and large are almost silent. Government almost always silent on these things. You know, so this is not just a a challenge unique to this particular war. It's certainly something that says that journalists globally, uh, their, their, their role in society is being undermined by many of the very institutions uh, that, that are there to uphold and protect, uh, you know, basic human rights. Yeah. Uh, you know, it must be a really difficult decision for a journalist or any media outlet to... Uh, think about do we deploy resources to the combat zone, uh, human resources and otherwise, um, and how do we best protect them when we do do so? Um, I'm assuming a lot more of the reputable, uh, and by reputable I mean here, you know, multinational media organizations are pulling their journalists out of, of, of Gaza, and what remains are Palestinian journalists who are residents of Gaza, who by definition, don't quite have anywhere else to go. In that instance, what impact does that have on the flow of information, which I am assuming is essential uh, in, in, in combat? So one of the things that's interesting about this is that, you know, if you compare it to the invasion of Iraq, you saw at the time a lot of uh, critique of embedded journalists. There they were, the journalists tended to be on the side of the Western forces that were going in and invading. There weren't nearly as many journalists on the inside in Iraq there when those bombs and things were, were, were raining down on, on Iraq at, at the time, right? And this in, in this instance, you've got a lot more journalists that are there in Gaza trying to report. And because there's, you know, journalists are funny and crazy people. If you tell them there's a place they can't go, they'll go there. And when you show them that there's a place that there's an information blackout, it's something that they will go and they will do their damn best to make sure that they can get some level of information out there. Because, of course, journalists know better than anyone that, uh, you know, truth is the first casualty of war. And they'll know that if you aren't there at the scene reporting, able to bring out the stories that are happening, able to, you know, show the devastation, able to bring credible, reliable, and accurate information out there, it means that those that are on the outside of that scenario are able to have far greater level of control of those different narratives, whether they are themselves accurate or otherwise. So you really do need journalists to be on the scene. I mean, it's the whole reason that particularly in a world where what's real and what isn't is increasingly hard to discern, you really do need journalists mm. there on the ground able to verify and be there to say, I was here, this is how I know this happened, this is where the, the issue was, it was this time of day, this is where the rocket came from, or the bomb, or the whatever it is, the group of attacking soldiers, or whoever they were, that they need to be there, because unless and we are able to have those kinds of things, we're then going to be subjected to something where it's, uh, you know, someone can create these things, or they can shift narratives in a particular direction. Yeah. To this, I, and your previous answer was that, uh, you know, in part, the, the global community is silent on specifically the killing of journalists here. Other than just condemning the killing of journalists, what more could the global community do? 
Well, I think that they should properly resource them. Very often we find these days with journalists having less and less resources. And again, that means that, you know, to your earlier part of your question, we tend to increasingly rely on the big multinational entities because they're one of the few that do actually have enough resources to send journalists into these places. So they need to make sure that journalists are properly trained and properly protected. There are very few newsrooms these days, a handful of them that have the resources to train their journalists to be conflict ready, to be to know how to respond, what to do in those incredibly dangerous uh, scenarios and situations. So they could be making sure that there are those kinds of programs that take place in their countries. They could be making sure that they treat those uh, deaths uh, with a level of priority that they can now go and investigate them and critically make sure that due process takes place. You know, once you start to hold people accountable, it then moves beyond just merely saying this is bad to saying if you kill a journalist, you will be found, you will be punished, and you will face you know, the full might of the law, whichever law that is in whichever country that is. Yeah. So there are some fairly concrete actions that can take place. But then again, it must be to reinforce the critical importance of why you need uh, free and critical journalists and credible journalists in all kinds of situations. Yeah, yeah. Um, at the moment, is there any discussion of, Jonathan, to you, I'm asking this, is there any discussion about a additional support and assistance for either a passage to safety for journalists currently in Gaza or about providing additional resources and support for journalists in Gaza that you may be aware of? As far as I know, this has not come up in any way, as far as I know. <coughs> uh, I think we got a commercial break there. No, 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 go right ahead. We're listening to you. I'm oh, sorry, okay. <clears throat> as far as I know, uh, this has not come up anywhere. Certainly, it hasn't been mentioned in, the, in any, it hasn't been mentioned in any of the nightly briefings by the IDF spokesperson, who gives pretty good and detailed and accurate briefings every night on a regular basis. So uh, I have not come across, that does not seem to be uh, on anyone's radar at this point. We don't know how things will progress on the ground campaign, how long it will last. And uh, so it may become relevant, but it doesn't seem to be for the time being. I do not ever want to add something about what, what, uh, what the other guest, I forget his name, William. sorry, I missed his name. William, sorry, said earlier. And would you also say can I, can I, sorry can you know, i just ask you to jonathan can i just ask you to hold still your line uh just has a little bit of distortion in it at the moment <clears throat> is that be- is this better now not particularly but 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 please please do go ahead let's let's see if it holds okay how's this now better no let me let me put you on hold and then then i'll bring you back let's see if we can get you on a better line uh that that distortion uh in the um, audio line is 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 continuous William, uh, just lastly, um, you know, and, and, and I guess this is where I ended up uh, before I brought you into the conversation um, with Jonathan, is this. Um, and I'm asking you to make a normative assessment here that may fall outside of analyzing, uh, you know, journalistic codes and practices here. But in your mind, what do you think makes this particular war one of the deadliest for a journalist, the war 
closest approximated to this is the American uh, invasion of Vietnam and the Vietnam War, um, you know, um, at, at, at least five decades, six decades ago, right? Um, and that was a pivotal moment about the realization of information uh, in war, right? Um, and, and, and this comes as close to that. Not even in Syria has as many journalists been killed. What do you think makes this particularly different from any other war and conflict we've seen in the world? I suspect that part of it is about where the journalists are themselves. So as I said in my example of the invasion of Iraq, you saw a lot of embedded journalists. And often if you think of when you see journalists going in and reporting on protests, they very frequently tend to be uh, on, for example, just behind the police lines. Very often the police won't let them go there, go beyond that or beyond the the soldiers' lines that are there, you know, they're on that side. So if you look at the reporters in the Ukraine, they're going in with people that are experts, that are local um, uh, people that know exactly where they're going, uh, and they very often then tend to be escorted by military escorts, you know. When you look at this scenario, it's not like you've got organized sides there, you know. It's not like Hamas are standing there as, as hello, we're the soldiers here and we'll guide you and, and help you through. You know, you've got people that are, are around and you've got lots of locals, but then you also have, um, you know, bombing taking place on areas where the journalists have no idea that that bombing is going to take place there. So I suspect that it's a case of that it is, as your uh, a colleague said earlier, a lot of journalists in a very densely populated place, but also mm. like any other civilian there on that level, they are basically the same as any civilian. They have no idea that the building that they're in, whether, you know, whatever the building may be, that that's going to be taken out that day, that night or, or whenever. Plus, as I said, I suspect that if you go back, uh, you know, a lot of journalists these days would not have had ne- the necessary uh, conflict uh, training and the simple mechanisms, and I'm not sure that that many of them have the necessary protective gear. And as we're seeing, it's not like they're being afforded any kind of special protection in that regard. So mm. I imagine that those are probably some of the the key factors. And it may also be, you know, that in some instances journalists are taken out deliberately to to silence them. We've, you know, that's not an unusual thing. We, in fact, many of the deaths that tend to occur in our society these days tend to be when journalists are are reporting on things that uh, you know bad people don't want reported on so mm. i don't think that we can uh, rule that out in this instance so i imagine it's a it's, it's probably a mix of, of of all of those factors that are you know coming together in a perfect storm that are seeing you know just a horrific number of of, of deaths of journalists yeah, yeah, Jonathan, we have you back on the line. Hopefully, it's 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 the audio holds this time around. You you wanted to yes. respond to something very specific. There we go. Sounds much better. Yeah, yeah. What you when you mentioned earlier about the deafening silence in you know when in, in despite the the number of journalists who've been killed so far, and you mentioned it's just not just this war, but just a general phenomena that uh, the death of a journalist has much less impact today than it would have had, say, 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. And I think this says something about the perception of journalism in general. And we have to be candid here and admit that uh, the stature of this profession has changed for a number of reasons. A, more journalists end up 
losing trust because they end up uh, uh, disseminating false news, sometimes deliberately and sometimes undeliberately, not at all deliberately, because they were lied to themselves. 30 years ago, public officials were much more hesitant to openly lie to a journalist because they, we, we, act, we were living on a different ethical scale. And a public servant or an elected official knew that if they were caught lying to a journalist, there would be consequences. Today, there are no consequences. It doesn't matter. No one's doing anything. Our ethical standards have changed. So obviously, a journalist who deliberately it becomes part of the fake news industry, doesn't deserve protection. But even journalists who are not there, the majority are not there, but they unwittingly, unintendedly, issued, you know, disseminated false news because they were lied to by, by an official. But in the other, it, it hurt, you know, it, it brings the whole repute of the profession down. And also, let's not forget social media. 30 years ago, not everyone was a journalist. On, so on the one hand, social media is wonderful. It's given a voice to everyone. It's the vox populi, and everyone can, can have access to information and, and show the world where they are. But it means there are no ethical standards. No, there's nothing, no regulation of any kind. And when anyone with a camera, with a TV, with a, with a cell phone, or with a camera uh, for some social media outlet can say, I'm a journalist, which is what happens these days. So that's had an impact on the standing. I think part of the reason why there's this use so accurately put deafening silence is that the entire stature and perception of the profession has changed, partly because of the changing norms in our politics in general, where things that type of lying that you couldn't get away with 20 or 30 years ago, you can today. And because social media, uh, and I don't want to denigrate social media, but where everyone can be a journalist and how do you tell the difference? It obviously has an impact on the stature of the profession on yeah. how it's perceived. Okay. And I think that probably also contributes to the fact that people become more blasé about it. Yeah. Just as a last bite, uh, William, is that a perspective you agree with? So, I mean, if you look at the global sort of reports on trust in journalists, you can see that that has uh, generally decreased, you know, um, and certainly social media. And we've seen in this particular conflict how, uh, you know, sometimes video game footage has been passed off as, as actual footage taken on the ground. So journalism itself is being uh, undermined by an explosion of, of, of mis- and disinformation um, plus the fact that in many instances, you know, journalists don't cover themselves in, in glory when they do uh, get things wrong. So a lot of those elements contributing to undermining trust and credibility of journalism, not helped, of course, when you've got uh, global leaders who, who lie as a matter of, of, of default practice and do actively and deliberately undermine the role of, of journalism in a democratic society. And when that happens, you know, it, it creates a really toxic kind of spiral that the more you do, the more you do, the, the, the less trust journalists have. And the thing is to say, yes, there are lots of faults with journalists and journalism and their biases, et cetera, et cetera, and their weaknesses. And all of these things are very true, you know, but it doesn't mean that the role that journalism plays in a democratic society is any less valuable or any less critical. The simple point is, if you want a democracy, if you believe that uh, you want to support a, a culture of rights where you believe in dignity and equality for all, yeah. journalism, credible journalism, is an active, integral part of exactly that framework. 
Yeah. And it then becomes about saying, well, how do we support, sustain, protect, and promote the really good and really credible journalists there are there? Because, yes, they're rubbish ones. But they're also ones who, in this instance, have risked their lives, lost their lives, just to be there to tell and bring us yeah. credible, accurate information. And we can't lose sight of that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to have to leave it there. William Bird, Director of Media Monitoring Africa. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Really appreciate it. Jonathan Schwartz, uh, journalist in Tel Aviv. Appreciate your perspective this evening as well. We're going to take a break. On the other side of this, we continue the show. I'm taking your reactions to this conversation as well on 086-000-2032 in your WhatsApp voice notes on 614 104